Volume two, chapter four of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume two, chapter four. I give thee sixpence. I will see thee damned first. Canny. Some one rejoiced exceedingly when, in those burning August days, John came back to Overley. Mitty loved him. She was the only woman who as yet had shown him any love at all and his nature was not an unthankful one. Mitty was bound up with all the little meagre happiness of his childhood. She had given him his only glimpse of woman's tenderness. There had never been a time when he had not read aloud to Mitty during the holidays, when he had forgotten to write to her periodically from school. When she had been discharged with the other servants at his father's death, he had gone in person to one of his guardians to request that she might remain and had offered half his pocket-money annually for that purpose, and a sum down in the shape of a collection of foreign coins in a sock. Perhaps his guardian had a little boy of his own in Eton jackets who collected coins. At any rate, something was arranged. Mitty remained in the long, low nurseries in the attic gallery. She was waiting for him on the steps on that sultry August evening when he returned. John saw her white cap twinkling under the stone archway, as he drove along the straight, wide drive between the double rows of beeches which approached the castle by the northern side. Some houses have the soothing influence of the presence of a friend. Once established in the cool, familiar rooms and strong air of his native home, he regained his health by a succession of strides, which contrasted curiously with the stumbling ups and downs and constant relapses which in the earlier part of his recovery had puzzled his doctors. For the first few days, just to live was enough. John had no desire beyond sitting in the shadow of the castle with Mitty, and feeling the fresh, heather-scented air from the moors upon his face and hands. Then came the day when he went on Mr. Goodwin's arm down the grey lichened steps to the Italian garden, and took one turn among the stone-aged beds under the high south wall. Gradually, as the languor of weakness passed, he wandered further and further into the woods, and lay for hours under the trees among the ling and fern. The irritation of weakness had left him. The enforced inaction of slowly returning strength had not yet begun to chafe. His mind urged nothing on him, required no decisions of him, but like a dear companion instead of a taskmaster, rested, and let him rest. He watched for hours the sunlight on the bracken, listened for hours to the tiny dissensions and confabulations of little creatures that crept in and out. There had been days and nights in London when the lamp of life had burned exceeding low, when he had never thought to lie in his own dear woods again, to see the all squinging and chiding against the sky, to hear the cry of the water-hen to its mate from the reeded pools below. He had loved these things always, but to see them again after toiling up from the gates of death is to find them transfigured. The light that never was on sea or land gleams for a moment on wood and world for eyes that have looked but now into the darkness of the grave. Almost it seems in such hours as if God had passed by that way, as if the forest had knowledge of him, as if the awed pines kept him ever in remembrance. Almost. Almost. Di was never absent from John's thoughts for long together. His dawning love for her had as yet no pain in it. 
it wanted still in glades of hyacinth and asphodel. Truly, love is bonny a little while while it is new. Its feet had not yet reached the stony desert places and the lands of fierce heat and fiercer frost, through which all human love which does not die in infancy must one day travel. The strain and stress were not yet. John was coming back one evening from a longer expedition than usual. The violet dusk had gathered over the gardens. The massive flank and towers of the castle were hardly visible against the sky. As he came near, he saw a light in the arched windows of the chapel, and through the open lattice came the sound of the organ. Someone was playing within, and the knight listened from without. John stood and listened too. The organ, so long dumb, was speaking in an audible voice, was telling of many things that had lain long in its heart, and that now at last trembled into speech. Some unknown touch was bringing all its pure, passionate soul to its lips. Its voice rose and fell, and the listening knight sighed in the ivy. John went noiselessly indoors by the postern, and up the short spiral staircase in the thickness of the wall, into the chapel, an arched Elizabethan chamber leading out of the dining-hall. He stopped short in the doorway. The light of a solitary candle at the further end gave shadows to the darkness. As by an artistic instinct it just touched the nearest of the pipes, and passing entirely over the prosaic footman, blowing in his shirt-sleeves, lit up every feature of the fair, exquisite face of the player. Beauty remains beauty, when all has been said and done to detract from it. Archie was very good to look upon. Even the footman who had been ruthlessly torn away from his supper to blow, thought so. John thought so as he stood and looked at his cousin, who nodded to him and went on playing. The contrast between the two was rather a cruel one, though John was unconscious of it. It was Archie who mentally made the comparison whenever they were together. Ugliness would be no disadvantage, and beauty would have no power, if they did not appear to be the outward and visible signs of the inner and spiritual man. Archie was so fair-haired, he had such a perfect profile, such a clear complexion, and such tender, faithful eyes that it was impossible to believe that the virtues which clear complexions and lovely eyes so plainly represent were not all packed with sardine-like regularity in his heart. His very hair looked good. It was parted so beautifully, and it had a little innocent wave on the temple which carried conviction with it, to the young of the opposite sex. It was not because he was so handsome that he was the object of a tender solicitude in many young girls' hearts, at least, so they told themselves repeatedly, but because there was so much good in him, because he was so misunderstood by elders, so interesting, so unlike other young men. In short, Archie was his father over again. Nature had been hard on John. Some ugly men look well, and their ugliness does not matter. John's was not of that type dear to fiction. His features were irregular and rough, his deep-set eyes did not redeem the rest of his face. Nothing did. A certain gleam of nobility, shining dimly through its harsh setting, would make him better looking later in life, when expression gets the mastery over features. But it was not so yet. John looked hard and cold and forbidding, and though his face awoke a certain interest by its very force, the interest itself was without attraction. 
It must be inferred that John had hair, as he was not bald, but no one had ever noticed it except his hair-cutter. It was short and dark. In fact, it was hair, and that was all. Mitty was the only other person who had any of it, in a lozenge-box. But who shall say in what lockets and jewel-cases one of Archie's flaxen rings might not be treasured? Archie was a collector of hair himself, and there is a give-and-take in these things. He had a cigar-box full of locks of different colours, which were occasionally spread out before his more intimate friends, with little anecdotes respecting the acquisition of each. A vain man has no reticence, except on the subject of his rebuffs. Bets were freely exchanged on the respective chances of the donors of these samples of devotion, and their probable identity commented on. Three to one on the black, ten to one on the dyed amber, forty to one on the lank and sandy, it's an heiress. Archie would listen in silence, and smile his small saintly smile. Archie's smile suggested anthems and summer dawns and blancmange all blent in one. And then he would gather up the landmarks of his affections, and put them back into the cigar-box. They were called Tempest's Scalps in the regiment. Archie had sat for Sir Galahad to one of the principal painters of the day. He might have sat for something very spiritual and elevating now. What historic heroes and saints have played the organ? He would have done beautifully for any one of them, or Dixie might have worked him up into a pendant to his harmony with an angel blowing instead of the footman. And, just at the critical moment when the organ was arriving at a final confession and swelling towards a dominant seventh, the footman let the wind out of her. There was a discord and a wheeze and a death-rattle. Archie took off his hands with a shudder and smiled a microscopic smile at the perspiring footman. Archie never, never, never swore, not even when he was alone and when he cut himself shaving. He differed from his father in that. He smiled instead. Sometimes, as things went very wrong, the smile became a grin. But that was all. "'That'll do, thank you,' he said, rising. "'Well, John, how are you? Better? I did not wait dinner for you. I was too hungry. But I told them to keep the soup and things hot till you came in.' They had gone through the open double doors into the dining-room hall. At the further end a table was laid for one. "'When did you arrive?' asked John. "'By the seven-ten I, I walked up and found you were missing. "'It's distressing to see a man eat when one is not hungry oneself,' "'continued Archie plaintively as the servant brought in the hot things "'which he had been recently devastating. "'No, thanks. I won't sit opposite you and watch you satisfy your country appetite. "'You don't mind my smoking in here, I suppose. "'No womankind to grumble as yet.' "'He lit his pipe and began wandering slowly about the room which was lit with candles in silver sconces at intervals along the panelled walls. John wondered how much money he wanted, and ate his cutlets in silence. He had as few illusions about his fellow-creatures as the steward of a channel steamer, and it did not occur to him that Archie could have any reason but one for coming to Overley out of the shooting season. Archie was evidently pensive. "'It's a large sum,' said John to himself. Presently he stopped short before the fireplace and contemplated the little silver figures standing in the niches of the high-carved mantel-shelf. They had always stood there in John's childhood, and when he had come back from Russia in the spring he had looked for them in the plate-room and had put them back himself. The quaint frilled courtier 
beside the quaint ruffed lady and the little cavalier in long boots beside the abbess. The dresses were of Charles I's state, and there was a family legend to the effect that that victim of a progressive age had given them to his devoted adherent Amius Tempest the night before his execution. It was extremely improbable that he had done anything of the kind, but at any rate there they were, each in his little niche. Archie lifted one down and examined it curiously. "'Never saw that before,' he said, keeping his teeth on the pipe, which desecrated his profile. "'Everything was put away when I was not regularly living here,' said John. "'I dug out all the old things when I came home in the spring, and Mitty and I put them all back in their places.' "'Barfin had a sale the other day,' continued Archie, speaking through his teeth. "'He was let in for a lot of money by his training-stables.' and directly the old chap died he sold the library and half the pictures and a lot of stuff out of the house. I went to see them at Christie's, and a very mouldy-looking assortment they were, but they fetched a pile of money. Barfle and I looked in when the sale of the books was on, and you should have seen the roomful of Jews and the way they bid. One book, a regular old fossil, went for three hundred while we were there. It would have killed old Barford on the spot if he'd been there, so it was just as well he was dead already and there were two silver figures, something like these, but not perfect. Barford said he had no use for them, and they fetched a hundred apiece. He says there's no place like home for raising a little money. Why, John, Gunningham can't hold a candle to Overley. There must be a mint of money in an old barracks stuffed full of gimcracks like this. Yes, but they belong to the house. Do they? Well, if I were in your place, I should say they belong to the owner. What's the use of having anything if you can't do what you like with it? If ever I wanted a hundred or two, I would trot out one of these little silver johnnies in no time, if, if they were mine. John did not answer. He was wondering what would have happened to the dear old stately place if he had died a month ago, and if it had fallen into the hands of those two spendthrifts, Archie and his father. He could see them in possession whittling it away to nothing, throwing its substance from them with both hands. Easy-going, self-indulgent, weakly violent, unstable as water, he saw them both in one lightning-flash prophetic imagination, drinking in that very room, at that very table. The physical pain of certain thoughts is almost unbearable. He rose suddenly and went across to the deep bay window, on the stone sill of which Amias Tempest and Tom Fairfax, his friend, who together had held overly against the roundheads, had cut their names. He looked out into the lattice darkness and longed, fiercely, passionately, for a son. Archie's light laugh recalled him to himself with a sense of shame. It is irritating to be goaded into violent emotion by one who is feeling nothing. "'Benny for your thoughts,' said Sir Galahad. There was something commonplace about the young warrior's manner of expressing himself in daily life, which accorded ill with the refined beauty of his face. "'They would be dear at the price,' said John, still looking out. "'Care killed a cat,' said Archie. He had a stock of small sayings of that calibre. Sometimes they fitted the occasion, and sometimes not. There was a short silence. "'Quicksilver is lame,' said Archie. "'What have you been doing with her?' asked John, facing round. "'Oh, nothing in particular.' I rode her in the Pierpoint steeplechase last week, and she came down at the last fence and lost me fifty pounds. 
I came in third, but I should have been first to a dead certainty if she had stood up. Send her down here at once. Oh, yes, and thanks awfully and all that sort of thing for lending her, don't you know? Very good of you. Though, of course, you could not use her yourself when you were laid up. I'm going back to town first thing tomorrow morning. Only got a day's leave to run down here. Thought I ought to tell you about her. I'll send her off the day after tomorrow, if you like. But the truth is... A good deal of circumlocution, that favourite attire of certain truths, was necessary before the simple fact could be arrived at, that Quicksilver had been used as security for the modest sum of £445, which had been absolutely incumbent on Archie to raise at a moment's notice. Heaven only knew what would not have been involved if he had not had reluctant recourse to this obvious means of averting dishonour. When Colonel Tempest and Archie began to talk about their honour, which was invariably mixed up with debts of a dubious nature, and an overdrawn banking account and an unpaid tailor, John always froze perceptibly. The Tempest honour was always having narrow escapes, according to them. It required constant support. "'I would not have done it if I could have helped it,' explained Archie in an easy attitude on the window-seat. "'Your mare, not mine. I knew that well enough.' I felt that at the time, but I had to get the money somehow, and positively the poor old G was the only security I had to give. Archie was not in the least ashamed. It was always John who was ashamed on these occasions. There was a long silence. Archie contemplated his nails. "'It's not the money I mind,' said John at last. "'You know that.' "'I know it isn't, old chap. It's my morals you're afraid of. You said so in the spring.' "'Well, I'm not going to hold forth on morals again, as it seems to have been of so little use. "'But look here, Archie. I've paid up a good many times, and I'm getting tired of it. "'I'd rather build an infant school, or a home for cats, or something with a pretense of common sense, with the money in the future. "'It does you no manner of good. You only chuck it away. "'You're the worst for having it, and so am I for being such a fool as to give it to you. "'It's nonsense telling you suddenly that I won't go on paying.' when I've led you to expect I always shall, because I always have. Of course you think, as I'm well off, that you can draw on me for ever and ever. Well, I'll pay up again this once. You promised me in April it should be the last time you'd run up bills. Now it is my turn to say this is the last time I'll throw money away in paying them. Archie raised his eyebrows. How very close-fisted John was becoming! and as a boy at school, and afterwards at college, he had been remarkably open-handed, even as a minor on a very moderate allowance. Archie did not understand it. "'I'll buy back my own horse,' continued John, trying to swallow down a sense of intense irritation. "'And if there is anything else—I suppose there's a new crop by this time—I'll settle them. You must start fair. And I'll go on allowing you three hundred a year, and when you want to marry I'll make a settlement on your wife, but—' By God, I'll never pay another sixpence for your debts, as long as I live. Archie smiled faintly and stretched out his legs. John really cut up rough like this. He had an uneasy suspicion that the present promptly afforded assistance would hardly compensate for the opening vista of discomfort in the future. And John's tone jarred upon him. There was something fixed in it. And Archie's nebulous, easy-going temperament had an invincible repugnance to anything unpliable. He had as little power to move John as a mist has to move a mountain. It proved on many occasions how little amenable John was to persuasion 
and each recurring occasion had filled him with momentary apprehension. He felt distinctly uncomfortable after the two had parted for the night, until a train of reasoning, the logic of which could not be questioned, soothed him into his usual trustful calm. John, he said to himself, had been out of temper. He had eaten something that had disagreed with him. That was why he had flown out. How frightfully cross he himself was when he had indigestion! And he, Archie, would never have grudged John a few pounds now and again if their positions had been reversed. Therefore it was not likely John would either. And John had always been fond of him. He had nursed him once at college through a tedious illness, unadorned on his side by Christian patience and fortitude. Of course John was fond of him. Everybody was fond of him. It had been an unlucky business about Quicksilver. No wonder John had been annoyed. He would have been annoyed himself in his place. But— how all-embracing phrase! It would be all right. He was eased of money difficulties for the moment, and John was not such a bad fellow, after all. He would not really turn against him. He'd be sure to come round in the future, as he had always done with clock-like regularity in the past. Archie slept the sleep of the just, and went off in the best of spirits and the most expensive of light overcoats next morning, with a cheque in his pocket. John went back into the dining-hall after his departure to finish his breakfast. But apparently he was not hungry, or he forgot all about it. He went and stood in the bay window, as he had a habit of doing when in thought, and looked out. He did not see the purple pageant of the thunderstorm sweeping up across the moor and valley, and already vibrating among the crests of the trees in the vivid sunshine below the castle wall. He was thinking intently of those two men, his next of kin. Supposing he did not marry? Supposing he died childless? Overly and the other vast Tempest properties were entailed, in default of himself and his children, on Colonel Tempest and his children. Colonel Tempest and Archie came next behind him. One slip, and they would be in possession. And John had almost slipped several times, had several times touched that narrow brink where two worlds meet. He had no fear of death, but nevertheless death had assumed larger proportions in his mind and in his calculations than is usual with the young and the strong, simply because he had seen him very near more than once and had ceased to ignore his reality. He might die. What then? John had an attachment which had the intensity of a passion and the unreasoning faithfulness of an instinct for certain carved and pictured rooms and lichened walls and forests and valleys and moors. He loved Overly. His affections had been planted under a north wall, and like some hardy, tenacious ivy they clung to that wall. Overly meant much to him, had always meant much, more than was in the least consistent with the rather advanced tenets which he, in common with most young men of ability, had held at various times. Theories have fortunately little to do with the affections. He could not bear to think of Overly passing out of his protecting love to the careless hands and selfish heedlessness of Colonel Tempest and Archie. There are persons for whom no income will suffice. John's nearest relations were of this time-honoured stamp. As has been well said, in the midst of life they are in debt. John saw Archie in imagination trotting out the silver johnnies, the miniatures, the pictures, the cameos, the old Tempest manuscripts, for which America made periodic bids, 
the older plates, all, all would go, would melt away from niche and wall and cabinet. Perhaps the books would go first of all, the library to which he in his turn was even now adding, as though who had gone before him had done. How they had loved the place, those who had gone before! How they must have fought for it in the early days of ravages by Borderer and Scott! How Amius the cavalier must have sworn to avenge those round-head cannonballs which crashed into his oak staircase and remained embedded in the stubborn wood to this day! Had any one of them loved it, John wondered, with a greater love than his? He turned from the blaze outside and looked back into the great shadowed room in the recesses of which a beautiful twilight ever lingered. The sunlight filtered richly but dimly through the time-worn splendour of its high windows of painted glass, touching here and there inlaid panel and carved wainscoting, and laying a faint mosaic of varied colour on the black polished floor. It was a room which long association had invested with a kind of halo in John's eyes, far removed from the appreciative or ignorant admiration of the stranger, who saw in it only an unique Elizabethan relic. Artists worshipped it whenever they got the chance, went wild over the Tudor fan vaulting of the ceiling with its long pendants and the quaint inlaid frets on the oak chimney-piece, talked learnedly of the panels above the wainscot, on which a series of genealogical trees were painted representing each of the wapentakes into which Yorkshire was divided having shields on them with armorial bearings of the gentry of the county entitled in Elizabeth's time to bear arms. Strangers took note of these things, and spelt out the rather apocryphal marriages of the tempests on the painted glass, or examined the date below the dial in the southern window with the name of the artist beneath it which had blazoned the arms. Bernard Dimikoff, fake it, 1585. John knew every detail by heart and saw them never, as a man in love with a noble woman gradually ceases to see beauty, or the absence of beauty in brow and lip and eyelid, in adoration of the face itself which meant so much to him. John's deep-set, steady eyes absently followed the slow travelling of the coloured sunshine across the room. Overly had coloured his life, as its painted glass was colouring the sunshine. It was bound up with his whole existence the Tempest motto graven on the pane beside him. Je le ferai durant ma vie, was graven on John's heart as indelibly. Mr. Tempest's dying words to him had never been forgotten. It is an honour to be a Tempest. You are the head of the family. Do your duty by it. The words were sunk into the deep places of his mind. What the child had promised, the man was resolved to keep. His responsibility and the great position in which God had placed him, his duty, not only as a man, but as a tempest, were the backbone of his religion. If those could be called religious who trust high instincts more than all the creeds. The family motto had become a part of his life. It was perhaps the only oath of allegiance which John had ever taken. He turned towards the window again, against which his dark head had been resting. The old thoughts and resolutions so inextricably intertwined with the fibre of pride of birth, the old hopes and aspirations, matured during three years' absence, temporarily dormant during these months of illness, returned upon him with the unerring swiftness of swallows to the eaves. 
he pressed his hand upon the pane. The thunderstorm wept hard against the glass. The sable tempest lion rampant on a field argent surmounted the scroll on which the motto was painted, legible still after three hundred years. John said the words aloud. Je le ferai durant ma vie. End of Volume 2, Chapter 4